Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's conversation is about something that... Many of you may not think about a great deal unless you are parents. We're going to be talking about bipolar disorder in children. Our guest today is Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, who is the medical director for AmeriHealth Caritas. He is also a board-certified adult and child psychiatrist, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. And Dr. Kaplan has been recognized in the U.S. News and World Report top doctors list. And again, I'm really pleased to have Dr. Kaplan here today to help us sort out exactly what bipolar disorder is in children, what it looks like, and what, if anything, can be done or should be done. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to Mind Talk. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Brewer. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Now, let's, as you heard me say, I want to start from the beginning. What exactly is bipolar disorder? How often does it tend to show up in children? Okay, so this is a short uh, question, but with a very long answer, because there's still a lot of disagreement about professionals regarding what exactly is or how does bipolar disorder apply to kids. So, as you know, there is a diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders in the U.S. It's called the DSM, and the last version is the DSM-5. So... The DSM-5 describes bipolar disorder as a constellation of various disorders. We won't get too granular about it, but of various disorders that generally have what's called a bipolarity. In other words, there are distinct episodes called manic episodes. And for many of these distinct bipolar disorders, there's also a depressive episode. So what we're looking at is a extreme facing a different extreme, going from mania to depression and thus the bipolarity name to it. So what is the most distinctive thing in bipolar disorder is something called a manic episode. And a manic episode is a distinct period of abnormally and persistent elevated, expansive, or irritable mood. So this is very important, the word distinct period. And it's accompanied by a number of things that you can see in the movie sometimes uh, where a person is very grandiose. They think they can cure the world's ills. They have decreased need for sleep. They're talkative. Uh, they don't make a lot of sense when they talk. They're very creative. They're very distractible. Uh, They get very excessively involved in activities that often are detrimental to the person. They gamble, they invest when they shouldn't invest. They can make a lot of money, also lose it right away. And that's a very important distinction, one that it's often uh, necessary to have an expert look at. And one very key issue that's a very broad way of answering this is that all these things have to be of sufficient severity to cause marked impairment. 
In other words, there's a combination of the symptoms and the fact that these symptoms are really not just one day or a mood uh, change in the moody adolescent, but rather this is really causing significant impairment. And so what I'd like to do is maybe bring you a little bit, give you a little bit of a historical perspective as to how we got to this definition and some of the challenges in exactly does my child have bipolar disorder? Do I go to a doctor? Is this normal? Is this abnormal? Should I be worried about? Perfect. And so the idea of uh, this condition that used to be called manic depressive disorder, it really traces back to Hippocrates, where he made descriptions of people who were very elevated in their mood and could also get depressed. And throughout history, there have been cases that were described, and more recently in the 1800s, when psychiatry began to develop as a science, a very gifted psychiatrist called Kreplin in Germany, uh, they came up with the idea that there was this condition called manic depressive disorder, and maybe it also affected children and adolescents, and there were some initial descriptions of kids as well. But as time went by and more modern psychiatry developed, the idea that this condition could occur in children was uh, relatively abandoned, in the same way that many other conditions were not felt to be possible in children. Children didn't have the cognitive ability, and also very difficult to uh, make a difference between what you just said. Children are elated. Uh, they sometimes talk nonsense. You know, is a child at four years old who says, I'm a superhero, is that child manic or is just part of the normal developmental uh, growth of a child? And so developmental issues tended to confound. And so it was abandoned. But at some point in the 90s, as people began to get more treatment because there were medications that some seemed to help in adults, a lot of adults started to say, well, you know, I've been having this thing since I was a kid. And so all of a sudden, the incidence of bipolar disorder in adults that reached somewhere between 4 and 5% uh, began to worry uh, doctors that maybe we were missing this in adolescence because they were saying, look, we're having these symptoms as kids, nobody took care of us, and here we're adults. So a bi an adult with bipolar uh, illness doesn't really appear all of a sudden. They're, they're people who grew up. And so a number of psychiatrists began to look into symptoms into children, and because of this sort of discrepancy, because of the developmental, what's pathological, what's normal, and the fact that there were a number of children who were very irritable, who were having lots of problems, who were moody, who did badly in school, and had no diagnostic category, a number of people began to diagnose bipolar disorder in children without having that concept that this is, is a distinctive theory. In other words, the classical or traditional or the uh, critical component of bipolarity is that this should be distinct. In other words, you should be okay most of the time. All of a sudden, the illness comes up you're elated, you're irritable, you don't need to sleep, you're very creative, you're talking a mile a minute. And then after the condition goes away, is treated or goes away on its own, 
then you go back to your sort of normal thing. And that was different from a group of children who were chronically moody and primarily aggressive. So uh, around the 90s or so, a lot of psychiatrists began to diagnose bipolar disorder in kids just because there was no other diagnoses that really fit that well this number of children, although the traditional definition of episodic was not uh, applied. I see. And so a very worrisome study in the uh, early 2000s uh, came up with the finding that from 1995 to 2005, in office visits, the diagnosis of children with bipolar disorder had gone up 40 times. Wow. And here's a lot of worry. Oh, my God, are we having an epidemic? Is there something in the water? What's going on? Why are these kids all of a sudden becoming bipolar? So from going unrecognized, and the worrisome part there is we're not really identifying kids who are suffering and we need to treat them. It went from that end of the pendulum perhaps to the other end of the pendulum where we started to diagnose bipolar illness in kids who may or may not have had bipolar illness. So, of course, pendulum tend to uh, go to the more neutral position. So a number of other researchers began to see that maybe the diagnosis was being applied to kids that had chronic irritability rather than a distinct episode. Dr. Kaplan, so, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you because we need to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue this conversation. I really think it's so important that our audience understand exactly what you're describing, sort of the history of this diagnosis and then bringing us up to today. So we will continue our conversation with Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, who is a medical director for AmeriHealth Caritas. We will continue that conversation in just a moment. Don't go away. Dr. Kaplan, you were talking about children who seem to be chronically irritable. What, how did that begin to change the thinking? All right. So then we were talking about the idea that perhaps too many kids were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. That has implications in the sense that the medications that are used for treating bipolar, and we'll go over that in a few minutes, but medications for bipolar disorder can be very, very toxic and have a lot of side effects. So if you don't have bipolar disorder, it'd be better not to use the medications. So a number of thinkers began to worry that this population of kids with ongoing and chronic irritability were not really bipolar, they had something else. And they began to figure out how they could differentiate bipolar kids from these other children. And so they created a new diagnostic category. And in the new manual, the DSM-5, there's a diagnostic category that just appeared in this uh, manual, and that is called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, or DMDD. So you realize, and, Dr. Kaplan, at this point that you, you've got some members of the audience, I mean, their heads are sort of twisting around on their shoulders. They can't, it, it, it gets to be very confusing. Is my child maybe doing drugs? Is my child maybe hyperactive? Does my child have ADD? 
does my I mean, there are just so many questions that come up as as the field is trying to refine more and more what this looks like in children. What do you say to the parents whose heads are spinning around right now? What I say is that there are a number of behaviors that are considered to be normal and fine. And so if you have an adolescent who is not sleeping because they're cramming for studies, for the tests they have the next day, that's normal. And if they're all excited because they are going on the first date and they're elated and giddy and silly, that's fine. But when you have a child or an adolescent who is having significant disruptions in their life. They can't sleep. They seem to be out of touch with reality. They're very aggressive. They don't do well in school. They may hear things that nobody else can hear. Their ideas are very strange. And this is affecting not only their family life, but their ability to relate to others. And a very important thing, and this is a major word, but the audience has to be aware of it, is the potential for suicide. When a child or an adolescent says, I don't feel I want to live anymore. I'm thinking about killing myself. These are the signals that will have a parent bring the child pretty immediately to a professional. And the first person could be the primary care, the pediatrician, and their good at deciding whether someone needs a more specialized kind of care, like a child psychiatrist. But parents, of course, they love their kids, and they know when something is wrong. They trust it. I always encourage parents to trust their guts. If they think something is wrong, don't worry that your kid is going to get offended or uh, that they're going to... uh, uh, hold a grudge for you over your life, your gut is good, mom and dad. You know when something's wrong with your kid. Bring your kid to the consultation. Get the reassurance from a professional who's an expert, and they will let you know whether this is something that is within the reasonable range or whether there's something to worry about. All right, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. There are certainly parents whose children may behave in ways that the parents are finding concerning. And you're saying take the child in to be evaluated. We also know that in today's world, many times it's going to take you a week or two or more, unfortunately, to get an appointment, particularly with someone who has specific expertise in the area that you're concerned about. Should a parent wait for that appointment, or should that a parent go to an emergency room? What do you want that parent to, to really think about as their options? There's signs of alert that parents should be uh, tuned into. So, for instance, if a child or adolescent is talking about dying or wanting to die or not wanting to live anymore, they need to probably take that child to an emergency room. Okay. It is better to err on the side of caution. Okay. Waiting, waiting times in emergency rooms are long, but... Kids don't talk about death unless they're really thinking about it, and and it's a good idea to rule out that this is not going to lead to something further worse. So the parent should not say to him or herself, this is just a phase, I'll wait and just see what happens. No, because unfortunately, we're all terribly awful, including uh, professionals, at predicting 
what seems to be a normal suicidal or an abnormal suicidal idea. So it is true that in surveys of high schools, up to 18% of uh, girls mostly, but also boys, uh, say that they've thought about suicide. Uh, so there is some presence of suicide, and fortunately these are ideas only, but it's very hard for a parent to really tell whether this is something that's going to progress into something further. So when somebody is talking about that, it's a good idea to get a consultation very quickly. If that adolescent is not only talking about suicide but is not sleeping well, is talking nonsense, is very agitated, those are signs to go to the emergency room. Let your pediatrician know, but uh, absolutely, uh, these are emergency kinds of conditions where it's better, as I said, to withstand a long wait in the waiting room, but make sure that there's nothing urgent that could create an awful crisis. Absolutely. And, um, and when you the say idea that... It's not to be an alarmist, but it's something that if your child all of a sudden has a horrible pain in their belly and they're like doubling down, you're going to do something very quickly and take him to the doctor. This would be a similar situation. Exactly. And, and, and I just want to go back for half a second to that statistic that you quoted. You said 18% of high school students, mostly girls but boys as well, have considered suicide? That's a huge they number. Have had, they have had suicidal. They, they reveal that they have thought about suicide. The percentage goes a little bit lower to maybe around 12% when you ask if they considered suicide, and it goes further down when you ask if they tried to commit suicide. And so girls tend to think more about suicide, and boys tend to commit more acts of uh, suicide than girls. So that's a differential there. So there is an element of a thought that may not really get into a suicidal act. And this is something that we could discuss for hours because what makes somebody suicidal is still great, of great uh, um, uh, questions. And we would like to be a lot better at it because we'd like to know exactly which are the people who think about suicide and then will go and commit an act of suicide this will help us really treat and address uh, the dangers of it versus people who think about it and never do it. But because of that, especially in children and adolescents, when there's talk of death, it is instrumental, very important, uh, almost like an emergency level, that you get some professional advice, and the sooner the better. Let me ask you a question. H how does bipolar disorder even happen? Is there a way to predict who is going to have bipolar disorder? There is no way to predict it, but what we do know is that bipolar disorder is one of the most familial conditions that exist in psychiatry. And by familial, I mean that when someone in the family has bipolar disorder, it's likely that other people in the family have bipolar disorder although the genes have not been properly identified, that situation helps to distinguish bipolar disorder from other conditions. So for instance, if you have 
a child with very severe attention deficit disorder, which is something that sometimes can be confused with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. But that child has a parent and a grandparent with bipolar disorder, then it's more likely that that child, instead of having a very severe attention deficit, probably has bipolar disorder. And the reverse is the same. If there are no relatives with bipolar disorder, then perhaps it's more likely that that kid will have ADHD instead. But we really cannot predict at this point. Our science is not there, although tremendous advances are being made as we speak. We don't have a test yet. And so the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is very difficult to make, and it must be made usually by an expert in mental health, particularly if it's for a child or an adolescent, someone who's going to meet with the child, who's going to meet with the parents, who's going to get all the reports from the school, and who's going to have seen a fair number of kids with similar conditions to be able to make the differential diagnosis. You, because you, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. You just said get reports from the school. Um, and there's certainly parents who, if they have a sense or a diagnosis that there's something that their their child is being challenged by, they don't want to tell the school, the theory being they don't want the child to be picked on, they don't want the child to be exposed, they don't want the child fill in the blanks. Do you recommend that if a child has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder that a parent disclose that to the school? We have something in this country, as it perhaps in other countries, that we've been fighting against for a very long time. That's called stigma. Yes. In other words, a diagnosis is not a bad thing. A diagnosis is, if you will, a good thing in the sense that you recognize a problem, and the name of the problem is diagnosis, and you know that for that name, for that diagnosis, there will be treatments that can be recommended that have been proven effective on other people with the same diagnosis. So the fact that you've been diagnosed is not a bad thing if you unfortunately have an illness. But the stigma is a bad thing, and yes. the bullying, and the making fun, and all that. Our society is striving to decrease stigma, and it, it's getting pretty good at it. I have to say that if we compare where we're now with when we were uh, decades ago, we're a lot better. Still a lot of work to do. But should the school reveal, should the parents reveal to the school, well, here's another thing. Every child in this country, as a citizen of this country, has the right to be educated in the least restrictive setting. And so if you have a condition that impairs your ability to think, to study, and you are in a regular classroom and you'll fail there, then that's not fair either. So there should be a communication between the school and the parents because Many of the kids with bipolar disorder and other conditions are entitled to special education remediation, which if the diagnosis is not revealed, uh, they will not be entitled to and they will fail. In fact, uh, according to the American Academy of Child Psychiatry, increasing numbers of children with bipolar disorder attend private therapeutic schools which have an educational mental focus because sometimes the public schools don't have the resources to treat or help the severe conditions. So 
by working with the school, you make your son or daughter entitled to some of these benefits. I see. And rightfully so, because they belong to you. They're part of your being a citizen of this great country. Dr. And Kaplan, I got I to gotta interrupt you. I'm so sorry, but we do have to take a break. We will be back in just a moment. Dr. Kaplan, if a child is diagnosed with bipolar disorder, what's the potential for them simply outgrowing the illness? Maybe parents don't have to worry about it for a lifetime. Maybe it'll just go away on its own. Is that likely? Unfortunately, Dr. Brewer, it's not. Uh, bipolar disorder is a lifelong condition, which does not mean that that child can do well in life. Okay, it is not a an illness uh, as, for instance, other types of illness where you have a declining uh, course. Bipolar disorder, there's the discrete periods, and when the illness is controlled and taken care of and stabilized with medication, people can have fulfilling lives. So it's something that you have to take care of, something that you will live with, it will appear at certain points and go dormant on other points, and that's why it's important you have a lifelong relationship with a therapist, a doctor, a system that knows you, that can adjust your medication, that can provide the specific psychotherapies, which can be very helpful for this condition, that you are learning within a system that understands what your particular circumstances are so they can teach you in a way that you can learn. And therefore, it's no gloom and doom, but it's important to know that this is not a condition that goes away, unfortunately. And in fact, we know, because you're right, more and more people are working to reduce uh, stigma as it is um, connected with the thoughts about mental health matters. And more and more we're hearing about very well-known people who are very successful, again, well-known, have bipolar disorder, and their lives are progressing and progressing well. So this is not, if you will, a death sentence uh, for the family or for the child. And there is hope for in the kids and adolescents with bipolar disorder because there are treatments that are effective. Um, sometimes they're not as effective as one would wish because they have some shortcomings, there might be side effects, but definitely, definitely, many of the medications that we use right now have a distinct and important improvement and can control many of the symptoms of bipolar illness. And it's important that people get that help early, that they don't let the symptoms take over and mark someone's life by failing school or being hospitalized in that level of sort of question as to is this normal or not normal. A parent is better for a parent not to struggle on their own with that question and to get some professional opinion, even if it's not in a crisis. But if you start thinking again, trust your gut. If you think there's something not right with your son or daughter, just ask the question. 
I know all of us are in fear of things happening to our children. That's how we feel about parents, uh, like parents. But it's important to prevent than to have worse problems. And therefore, an early question might be very important, even if you're afraid of the answer. Having an answer can be relieving. It's not that you're a bad parent, that you did something wrong. It's that there's a condition that needs to be treated and that we have proper and successful treatments for these conditions. Dr. Kaplan, clearly we have just touched the iceberg uh, of this and certainly other issues that parents and children uh, may experience. Unfortunately, time does not allow us to go further. Is there a, a reference or is there a place that you would like for parents to go to get more information about this or other illnesses related to children? I think the American Academy of Child Psychiatry is a very important reference place. They have lots of material for parents on a number of different conditions. Uh, the National Alliance Mentally Ill uh, also is also another uh, condition, another website that people can uh, talk, uh, review for these conditions. Wonderful. Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, I'm so sorry that we don't have more time um, to sort of pick your brain further, but I do very much appreciate your spending time with us today. Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, again, is a medical director for AmeriHealth Caritas. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan, for joining us today on Mind Talk. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service and is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so do email me with your location and any questions or comments you may have about Mind Talk. And that email address is Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And folks, don't forget to go to the Mind Talk homepage, sign up for the uh, free weekly program guide and our weekly free giveaway. Many of our guests on Mind Talk have written books, and you may be the one to receive a free copy. Folks, remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.